This is a reading of chapter 7 of Ordinary People as Monks and Mystics, Lifestyles for Self-Discovery. The title of the chapter is Illumination and Darkness Along the Mystic's Way. The person in the peak experience usually feels himself to be at the peak of his powers. He feels more intelligent, more perceptive, wittier, stronger, or more graceful than at other times. He is at concert pitch, at the top of his form. This is not only felt subjectively, but can be seen by the observer. That was by Abraham Maslow. The peak experience is critical to any discussion of the mystic's journey, since through it, and because of it, the individual gains an overarching and penetrating view into what he is at his best, into what he is when he simply is. The peak experience means that the person experiences himself being rather than becoming. He also experiences directly, and this is such a difficult point to convey to non-peakers, the transcendent nature of reality. He enters into the absolute, becoming one with it, if only for an instant. It is a life-altering instant, which many have described as one in which the mind stops, as a time in which the paradoxical change and changeless nature of the universe opens up to a person. Because the insights and experiences of the peak or illuminative moment are integrative to the mind and body, we will temporarily leave our study participants and attempt to make sense out of the peak experience. This chapter is divided into three parts for the purpose of clarifying the several dimensions of the peak experience. Each part deals with a specific aspect of the core religious moment, as the illuminative moment has also been called since it is exactly like those private conversion experiences which serve as the foundation stones or entry point to all major religious traditions. The three parts of this chapter are a general overview of the healing aspects of the peak experience, a brief comment about the reception to the mystic experience or resistance to it, in Western culture, and finally, some words about the dark side of the mystic's growth pattern. Through the peak experience, the individual gains an expanded view of himself and the world, is lifted above the world and his own limitations, for want of a more precise word, in a way that resolves personality splits, contradictions, and blocks to full functioning. This lifting up of the self this resolution of conflicts within the self gives rise to the term transcendence, which, according to New Webster's Dictionary, means going beyond the ordinary limits or surpassing normal human experience. This paradox can be grasped only through the actual experience of self-transcendence, but as the words of our study participant indicate, it cultures the personality, brings out its best qualities, and heals it as well. This experience allows me to trust, 
to let myself accept guidance, spiritual gifts, and counsel. It has let me reduce my own feelings of possessiveness and attachment. I am more relaxed, really unfidgety, to a degree very unusual for me. I'll go with this in trust and find out where this leads me. The moment is one in which we literally take leave of our senses, entering into a larger dimension of life, like a moment when we are completely absorbed in watching a brilliant sunset, or a time when we respond to a crisis exactly as we must in order to protect ourselves and our loved ones, perhaps watching ourselves as the actor while we do superhuman, inordinately competent things to make things right. The peak moment is a time when we come out of ourselves and connect with something infinite. This is the moment of full, pure awareness when the individual feels himself to be the cause of his creations and at the same time a part of some expansive sacred all. This is the time of non-duality. During this moment, the person is most innocent, childlike, spontaneous, vulnerable, unguarded, defenseless, and open. He is all these things because his separateness, that which in a previous chapter one of the study participants linked to insanity, has ended. He is bonded to a unitive force. This bonding creates, in consciousness and in the physical body as well, feelings of worthiness, compassion, love, of being responsible, capable, fully able to do. And as this chapter's opening quote and the one that follows suggest, he also appears that way to others. In the peak experience, the person is more apt to give the impression that it would be useless to try to stop him. It is as if now he had no doubts about his worth or about his ability to do whatever he decided to do. To the observer, he looks more trustworthy, more reliable, more dependable, a better bet. It is often possible to spot this great moment of becoming responsible in therapy, in growing up, in education, in marriage. The instance bestows on an individual the sense that all of creation is wonderful, God-filled, orderly, and safe. Fears dissolve into nothing, as if they had never existed, as if they were a lie, a delusion. This sense of safety, which also includes the individual being ridden of the fear of death, provides yet another key to why the peak experience heals so profoundly. Since much neuroticism thrives on nameless fears and vague free-floating anxieties. During and usually after the illuminative moment, the individual perceives everything as brighter, clearer, richer, more lustrous. This lustrous and expanded perceptual field is etched ever after in the individual's mind, and this further fuels the mystic's path, even enhances the individual's ability to recall and use the experience for his personal growth. In fact, 
My rather radical suggestion is that an individual can't reach full personality health until and unless he has had a peak experience, until he has transcended his own limited self and met himself in and as being. It is very likely that those who have the cosmic sense, either through a sudden intense conversion experience or through an almost constant gradual and lesser dose of peak experiences, are healthier people than the norm. Whatever their faults may be, these persons are likely to be more autonomous, integrated, open, and fully developed than people who haven't transcended, who cannot recall such moments, or who actively resist the idea. The phenomenon is so closely joined to creativity and what is currently called right brain thinking that it would be hard to discuss either of these attributes without also presenting information on the peak experience. Richard Buck, a physician who extensively studied and cataloged the personality traits of those he felt had cosmic consciousness, found that his subjects shared several exemplary traits. They were morally elevated, were intellectually illumined, had a sense of their own immortality, and had lost their fear of death as well as their sense of sin. Each had had one or more sudden awakening experiences, and their personality had that added charm which made them so attractive to others. His description of their appeal to others sounds remarkably like Maslow's observation of the personality of the peaker. Of Walt Whitman, someone with supremely well-developed mystic sense, Buck wrote, when I first knew Walt Whitman, I used to think that he watched himself and did not allow his tongue to give expression to feelings of fretfulness, antipathy, complaint, and remonstrance. After long observation, I satisfied myself that such absence or unconsciousness was entirely real. His deep, clear, and earnest voice contributed to the charm of the simplest things he said. He never spoke deprecatingly of any nationality or class of men, or time in the world's history, or against any trades or occupations, not even against any animals, insects, plants, or inanimate things, nor any of the laws of nature, nor any of the results of the laws, such as illness, deformity, or death. He never complained or grumbled either at the weather, pain, illness, or anything else. He never in conversation used language that could be considered indelicate. He never spoke in anger, never exhibited fear, and I do not believe he ever felt it. Some of the people in this study fit, although perhaps in lesser degrees, Buck's catalog of traits of the cosmically conscious. They have had and frequently enter the peak experience, as we shall see in the chapter with case study interviews. Their primary interest is the absolute, the values of being, cognition, and, like Whitman and others in Buck's research, they never complained, grumbled, or spoke of needing anything to round out their happiness and make it full. Subjects like truth, justice, beauty, the absolute or transcendent state are of high interest to them and they express a desire to live life in a way that exemplifies
the qualities of that which is highest and best in them. It is as if their lives have become imprinted with the qualities experienced during and gained through self-transcendence. In varying degrees, they express a loss of fear, such as the fear of death, of scarcity, of what others will say, or of defying convection. Of this, one study participant wrote, wrote me a letter in which he states, how can we experience the scriptural teaching, perfect love casts out fear? The full range of human fears has as its center the fear of death. Each time we succumb to a fear, we experience a little death, and through each overcoming of a fear, we are reborn. More fully, the conquest of fear is analogous to dying in that we risk losing in the process and gain a new life as the result. The peak experience conditions the personality to death because during it, the individual ego, i.e. separate sense, the I, vanishes. With this vanishing goes the fear of death, since the ego, the I, is what keeps those fears in place, believing as it does that there is a death, that is to say, a no-life condition, to fear. When the personality joins something so much, larger, eternal, infinite, even with the disappearance of the separate sense of self, the fear of death goes. Some of the study participants remarked that their peak experiences had awakened them to something which was so much more than they had ever known previously. One woman wrote, I have had many awareness experiences of transcendence. These have changed my life in that I felt I felt I touched the depth of existence, the incredible. I've retained a sense of awe, as well as the knowledge that it is there if I can learn to be open enough, trusting enough. Another woman in her 70s said, At the age of 18, I had several peak spiritual experiences, which transformed my life. These have caused me to take positive action toward a definite life's direction. As a result, my life's philosophy is tied to a real sense of God. Since college, my life verse has been summed up by Deuteronomy 33.27. The eternal God is my dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Another said, An out-of-body experience which I had in 1976 changed my life. It made me more aware of inner images urgings, and intuitions. Since then, I have leaned on these aspects of myself when making decisions and life choices. His comments remind us of the opening remarks about wholeness. The wholeness comes to whoever finds out what is, for him, good and holds fast to that. The peak experience, according to study participants, opens the way to their discovery of inner truths and the good. The study participants' perceptual sense of abundance increased. They speak about experiencing the world around them as luscious and full. They commented how odd it was, given their material, the materially sparse life situations, sparse by their own standards as well as societies, to feel so rich. 
This isn't puzzling once we grasp that the peak experience expands the individual's field of consciousness to include everything in the universe. He feels he has everything because he experiences everything within. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi has repeatedly taught that this experience opens the individual up to the field of all possibilities. This field is what author Joseph Chilton Pierce calls the crack in the cosmic egg. Although Pierce is also talking about the metanoia, the transformation of an individual's entire belief system, which accompanies the peak experience or moment of illumination, he writes of the exquisite insight which makes all things new again, the unifying, integrative moment which provides the individual with a glimpse of the connectiveness of all things, the micro-macro web of the universe, interrelationships of all people and things. This way of seeing, which has no dualities, a way of perceiving that shows us we are born. Have our lives and die within the context of a comprehensible, coherent, intelligent whole. A whole which loses nothing, even though everything is always changing. In this moment, the individual is taken out of himself and becomes disconnected from rigid, scientific, or culturally created laws. He becomes one with everything, loses his feelings of desperation, and feels a deep, healing inner peace and harmony. A study participant commented about his own healing. My transcendent experience has continued to transform my life over and over again, like reverberations that don't end. I've come to accept the fluidity of my life. I'm learning to live a life of faith, trusting I'll be provided for, not in a passive way, of course, but in a way that fears less and less. My work, i.e. as a result of these experiences, becomes proving God in every action, every event, even in the difficulties of life. Not I, but thou, because ultimately there's nowhere else to turn. The union of this sort, which I've carried with me since self-transcendence, is healing. What creates insanity is separation. The individual who has, or in rarer cases, as our case studies in chapter 8 describe, who lives in, this moment, is liberated from the narrow confines of ordinary waking consciousness. As a result, his energy, intensity, focus, and elation are greatly enhanced. For some, this is a once-in-a-lifetime glimpse of what they are at their deepest level of being, a glimpse which changes them forevermore. For others, these times come repeatedly. For those with a natural propensity toward mysticism, and not all those who have the peak experience have this propensity or leaning, this instant is their introduction to infinity, their life-altering initiation into the cosmic sense. The poet, artist, and mystic William Blake liken this condition of mind, heart, and perception to the cleaning of our perceptual field. In his now classic verse from The Marriage of Heaven, classic no doubt because his words in articulate language helped frame 
that ineffable moment which scores of others experience but cannot explain clearly. He writes, If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. For man has closed himself up till he sees all through the narrow chinks of his cavern. At the very least, the peak experience widens the individual's perception so that he sees something larger, so that his own little personality fuses itself to an eternal, infinite state of consciousness. Maslow called the peak experience an acute identity experience. By this, he meant that the individual becomes himself in a pure and uncontaminated way, that he feels himself to be boundless, at one with the world, at peace with himself, simultaneously powerful and vulnerable. For the moment, his logical, culturally conditioned mind and personality, his time-space orientation, becomes suspended, and self-consciousness dissolves to a new paradigm of self-awareness. The individual in the peak experience is always liberated, free, or some would say, enlightened, illumined, full of light. He is unconstricted and spontaneous, yet completely focused and totally present in the moment. Maslow believed that the world could be divided into two religions, peakers and non-peakers. Of this division, he said that some people can't admit to having had a core or peak experience and subsequently can't use such experiences to further their own development. He believed that these people were constitutionally different with a profound character, characterological makeup, which was completely at odds with the character structure of peakers. His writing suggests that non-peakers either deny, repress, or perhaps never have had peak experiences. He proposed that LSD or other similar drugs might stimulate such experiences in non-peakers, thus closing the gap between these two dissimilar types of human beings. In the last few years, it has become quite clear that certain drugs called psychedelic, especially LSD and psilocybin, give us some possibility of control in this realm of peak experiences. Perhaps we can actually produce a private, personal peak experience under observation, and whenever we wish, under religious or non-religious circumstances, thus bridging the gap between these two separated halves of mankind. My own observations, which I'll expand upon shortly, indicate two primary dangers in such drugs. First, the long-term effects of psychedelic drugs may actually deprive people of the motivation to grow and to function in a way that is best for their highest happiness. The effects of such drugs may render a person ultimately so lethargic perhaps for just the time that he will not seek out the very experiences, rigorous as these might be, he needs in order to confront his self-imposed limits of the proper, proper way and thus grow. Second, in my opinion, there is still an unexplained connection between the human nervous system, the individual's ability to experience transcendence, and his worldview as a whole. I'm not yet convinced that the long-range effects of any drugs on the human nervous system can produce the effects Maslow hoped for. 
Also, as an educator who has seen countless people, children, young adults, and adults at different levels of learning and experience, I find it somewhat intolerant, perhaps even insulting, to another to require that he take a drug to experience what I do. Moreover, at its core, my professional view about peakers versus non-peakers is different than Maslow's. While I also meet many men and women who do not recall having had a peak experience, denying, repressing, or simply not having had them, my sense is that this lack is itself symptomatic of a stage of personal development, not a division of types of humans, not evidence that the person is characterologically or constitutionally different. This view is in keeping with the Eastern, in this case, Hindu idea of levels of consciousness. The conceptual framework I have in mind and which is helpful to this issue goes this way. All humans experience three basic levels of consciousness, waking, dreaming, and dreamless sleep. The fourth level, pure awareness, what I have been calling transcendence or the peak experience, and some might say these are different, is gained suddenly during prayer, meditation, or some unexpected creative or leisurely moment. The fifth stage, what Buck calls cosmic consciousness, is reached when the fourth state of transcendent awareness is retained along with the other three relative states. In chapter 8, one of the case study interviewees described this fourth state quite nicely for us. The two highest states of consciousness are God consciousness, wherein the individual experiences ever subtler grades of transcendent thought during his ordinary daily and dream consciousness, and finally unity consciousness, in which the individual's nervous system and regular consciousness are so highly developed that the person lives in total unity with the absolute. Each of these states is a logical consequence of the one that precedes it. For instance, the mystic state would flow naturally out of the fourth stage, the transcendent level of consciousness. This framework, which until recently has been lacking in the Western tradition, is to me elegant and orderly in several ways, especially in terms of understanding peak experiencers and mystics. First, under this system of thinking, a peak experiencer is not necessarily a mystic. The person who has had one or several peak experiences may not be moved to search for a repeat of this experience or to spend his entire life searching for God. Many great artists, athletes, mothers, executives, and scientists show the effects of self-transcendence and even in their comments acknowledge having had such moments, but may not be moved to do anything more but use the insights gained to become the best person they can be within the context of their own professions and their own lives. I'm not sure that the mystic desire for oneness with God gives him a corner on being a better person or a higher species. And suppose the key would be in the fruits of his desires, the outcomes of his life. Mystics, by definition, dedicate their lives to striving for union with the transcendent. The peak experience fuels and energizes their desires while in most it just enriches, heals, and makes more whole their life. Second, a mystic can attain a highly developed cosmic sense and still have a way to go in his development. 
returning to peakers and non-peakers, my feeling at this stage in my research and understanding is that the more highly developed the personality, the more likely it is that the individual will be able to have and remember a peak experience. The more open he will be to ideas, including the idea of an orderly, abundant universe, the inner relationship of all life, and the acceptance of the concept of infinity. In my professional practice, where I deal primarily with well-educated, bright, and ambitious executives, especially creative entrepreneurial types, I find that most are reasonably open to discussing such issues once they trust the person they're speaking to. Even the most rational, linear thinkers can be gently encouraged to recall such experiences, since there are many common life instances that provide access to the peak moment, such as in sports, when concentrating on a complex, fascinating problem, and then totally relaxing. The subsequent leisure time often gives rise to the peak moment, the aha experience, in which insights and an answer sought after naturally comes into the mind. Or even during a sexual experience, where the moment of orgasm is often likened to a peak experience, in that the individual ego is momentarily dissolved. A client of mine, a lawyer with whom I regularly visit, and as bright, ethical, and sensitive a man as one would hope to meet, reacted skeptically when I first mentioned my interest in mysticism and peak experiences. He said that he had never had a peak experience, and that he felt that only emotional types cared about such matters. Knowing he was an avid skier, I asked him if, while skiing, he'd ever had a time where he'd been so totally absorbed in the activity that he'd forgotten all work, cares, and fears, and had joined into the skiing in so highly an evolved way that he actually became the skiing. He remembered having many such experiences and broke out in a big smile, saying he hadn't realized that that was what it had been. He added that these moments were, for him, the best moments of his life, times of incredible happiness, balance, and focus. He commented that during these times, he was so fully absorbed in the activity that he, his personality, his cares, his goals, and so on, seemed to vanish, bringing him into a sense of tremendous power and freedom. Whatever the person's life interests, this is exactly the outcome of the peak experience. The individual becomes egoless, perceives a kind of perfection in and around him, and self-transcends in a way that clarifies and makes all things whole. These moments bring people true happiness. They feel justified in some way, as if life has expanded meaning and elegance. Of his skiing episodes, my client said that he had felt renewed afterward, and wondered if that was why, when he had had too much work and worldly pressures, he headed for the ski slopes. If he was too busy to ski, just remembering his experiences on the slopes refreshed him. In fact, the feeling of renewal often continues long after the peak experience. Transcenders can, and regularly do, enter into the memory of their egoless times whenever they feel the need to be refreshed. Something cleansing, organizing, and stress-releasing happens to the entire mind-body through these experiences. 
It is this cleansing, coupled with a cluster of perceptual changes, such as being more responsive, holistic, and synergistic, rather than just thinking about these values, which contributes greatly to personality health. In spite of all the benefits of the illuminative, illuminative moment described above, the Western world has long been closed to this type of experience. The great prophets and seers in every major religion have probably all had a core religious experience, yet little is said about such matters in the traditional church environment. Almost every Judeo-Christian element has its highly organized, legalistic, and dogmatic aspect within which a smaller, essentially spiritual element exists. Usually, this spiritual core is just a handful of unorganized, unconnected individuals whose prayer life so richly contributes to their ability to have an intimate personal relationship with God that they could be called mystics. These private persons whose spiritual experiences are likely to be revelatory, transcendent, illuminative, may belong to any of the great world religions or may not be part of any religious structure. But overall, our Western culture, with some exceptions primarily stemming from the Catholic monastic traditions, the more liberal elements within the Episcopal Church, some evangelical movements which stress the healing, transformative power of the Holy Spirit, and a few psychoanalytic schools, such as Jungian, Asagioli, and the transpersonal schools, remains uniquely closed to the subject of mysticism and the higher reaches of human transpersonal consciousness. On the macro level, the larger society, our relatively young culture, has only recently become su sufficiently developed to entertain such ideas. Also, the teaching of the church after the Middle Ages contributed to a long-lasting negative attitude about mysticism. During the early period of the church, through at least the first decade after Christ, the religious traditions encouraged contemplative personal religious experiences, an intimate, direct relationship with God, an experiential relationship, which I'll assume would have been a level of consciousness open to transcending, was what St. Paul must have been referring to when he talked about knowing God. His own conversion experience was sudden and transformed his entire life's course. After it, Paul frequently urged his disciples to grow in their own intimate knowledge of God. This positive tradition of the contemplative knowledge of the absolute continued through the Middle Ages, where medieval monks practiced a somewhat methodless prayer in which they repeated scriptural passages, listening to their words as they said them, and entering into these sacred phrases with their entire bodies as well as with their minds. Monks memorized many passages of scripture, since there was no printing, therefore no books. This vocal or subvocal prayer was their life-changing response to God and represented their direct meditative discourse with him, as do chanting and other liturgical prayers today. In this way, they were transported physically and mentally, i.e. experientially rather than just intellectually, into close personal communion with God. During these decades, prayer, contemplation, and meditation 
were woven together into one undivided way of communion with God. These three acts could be engaged in during the same prayer session and frequently resulted in a kind of resting in God, much as in Eastern meditation, in which the individual transcends his personal boundaries to join the absolute. Around the 12th century, however, things began to change. With the birth of many new schools of theology and a more precise analytical approach to prayer and religious practices, came an increase in the tendency to classify, analyze, and compartmentalize prayer, and in a decline in contemplative prayer. As the centuries rolled on, mental prayer was further classified and divided into discursive, effective, or mystical, depending on whether the individual's prayer time was dominated by his thoughts, acts of will, or the graces of God, respectively. Now, three separate acts were no longer combined into a single prayer session. Rather, contemplation during prayer time seemed unlikely. No wonder, given all the attention to thinking about what type of prayer one was doing, and was even presented as something dangerous. The compartmentalization of prayer into different types, the idea that contemplation was reserved for a very few, that it might even be full, on, full of danger and not something to which the ordinary Christian should aspire, were all factors which eroded mystical theology during the 16th and 17th centuries. The final nail that was hammered into the coffin of the traditional teaching of the church was the obvious corollary that it was against humanity to aspire to contemplation. As devout people move spontaneously into the normal contemplative view of truth during prayer, they were up against this very negative attitude. They hesitated to go beyond discursive meditation because of instructions of, or warnings that they were given about the dangers of mysticism. They either gave up mental prayer altogether or through the mercy of God found some way of persevering in spite of the obstacles. The, this brief overview may help explain why there's been a general inattention, if not outright skepticism, to the potentials inherent in the mystic state of consciousness. Not until Maslow codified the benefits of the peak experience, as well as what he called the being values, i.e. values which correspond to the awareness of the transcendent realm, did researchers, educators, and the various helping professions begin paying closer attention to the attitudes, behaviors, and values of human health. As I've mentioned periodically in this book, the helping professions are, in my observation and experience, still tied much too closely in their own awareness and expectation to lesser values, to fear, phobias, limitations, the coping needs of human beings who manufacture, or at the very effect of their own problems and negativity. Their modality of advice giving, the frame of reference of their own professional biases, are those of adjusting to a culturally defined set of problems and not geared to introducing people to their transpersonal higher selves. Of course, this is a generality, and there is a new wave of psychologists, physicians, and other healthcare professionals who concern themselves with health, personal choice, responsible action. They are still in the mi minority, surrounded by others who, by their own perceptions, present a limited set of options to their clients and patients. 
As we have seen, some authors such as Underhill and Buck have suggested that only the mystic can be called whole, awakened to the hidden powers of an otherwise sleeping portion of the self. That may be true, largely because, as described, the experience of awakening so profoundly impacts a person's well-being and self-view, the expression of his best self. But awakening the sleeping portions of the self has a dark side. People who stretch the limits of their consciousness and nervous systems may experience many psychological and even physical discomforts. During much of the early stages of the mystic path, the personality moves sporadically toward a higher, more expanded limit of its own consciousness. This invariably involves the individual's nervous systems, since images, ideas, and altered, even if pleasurable, states of consciousness affect the mind and body, the whole physiological biosphere. The individual is pushing into a newly developed, unexplored, and highly private zone of experience. At the very least, the most tender emotions are tapped, as well as the most fearsome ones. The person can feel inordinately sad, vulnerable, or moved. He can be touched instantly by waves of strong emotions at little or no provocation. One person in the study told me that during a meeting, for no apparent reason, some heroic quality in a colleague so moved him that he had to fight back tears. Another said that he had had long periods of time where he couldn't participate in social situations. Such was his need for solitude, privacy, and quiet. Yet another reported feeling very vulnerable, much like the feelings she had when her child was born when she didn't want other people near the baby. She said, I feel very tender inside, as if I want to protect myself against negativity, smallness of mind, as if I'm incubating something within. I intuitively know this won't last, but right now I have a lot of difficulty being with people. The Western tradition, our schools, social institutions, helping professions, and all their training support systems our churches and synagogues, have very little empathy for solitude. The togetherness banner has been strung over every social institution. Families are taught they must do everything together. Marriages are built on the foundation of constant time together, with no options for either spouse to spend time alone, as if time alone was a mark of a failing marriage. Children are encouraged to socialize continually, having very little encouragement or practice in spending time alone. Corporations, a set of systems I'm very familiar with, often are punitive with managers or lower-level employees who want to spend time by themselves. Lunches, coffee breaks, dinners out are all times to socialize with others. Our whole cultural setup is geared to interactive time. Little wonder that when an individual starts to grow within himself, starts to develop his intuitive transpersonal self, he may find it necessary to pull back to learn how to be alone. Moreover, the Western tradition has few role models for those going through the turmoils of inner growth, even though common sense tells us that whenever anyone extends themselves into the farthest reaches of, its own, of his own awareness, awakening to what is deepest and most sacred within, with his own unique abysses, dreams, and nightmarish images, 
memories, aspirations. He may suffer a subtle and a devastating level of unexplainable stress. I call the stress extension stress and define it as the wear and tear within the mind, body, nervous system of someone who is reaching toward a level of awareness and functioning to which he is not yet adapted. Extension stress, and really this is only an adjustment of the definition of distress, which researcher Hans Seil, Selly, gave us many years ago, can be compared with the stresses suffered by those rare, unusual Olympic athletes who push their minds and bodies to the outer limits so that their physical performances can reach new heights. With such goals, they must, be, they must convince themselves that their body can do what they demand. The person who desires self-transcendence, who spends long hours in meditation, reflection, prayer, about issues that bring psychic rebirth, faces a good deal of pain. This pain might come from any number of sources, from the opening of inner sensibilities and reflecting on an entire life, including the refinement of habits, behaviors, relationships with others, and from letting go, as we have described in previous chapters of culturally ingrained ideas, possessions, aspirations. Letting go is a loss, and all loss carries with it grief work, stresses which take a long time to work through, questions about our choices and actions. The person who starts this work from the point of view of an Eastern tradition has a time-honored and more detailed roadmap to follow as well as gurus, teachers, symbolism, and language that makes this type of pain more understandable. However, in the West, with our emphasis on competition, social, and personal gratification, a psychoanalytic parenting and educational tradition which encourages adjustment rather than actualization. Actualization is often interpreted as me-ism by the press who gets its language from marketing experts and book-promoting newsmakers from any number of professions. There is a strong tendency to view any inner turmoil, especially that which comes from a self-imposed inner journey, as neurotic anxiety or selfishness, or imaginary hypochondria. Fortunately, increasing attention is being given to thinkers who acknowledge the difficulties faced by those undergoing this most sincere and radical transformation. Thomas Merton suggests that there is an existential anxiety crisis that precedes the final integration of life as a new man. He tells us that this anxiety is a necessary partner to psychic rebirth, the birth of the person into a higher level of functioning and perceiving and feeling. This final integration, because it demands a state of functioning and maturity beyond mere social adjustment, creates the cosmic or universal man. He has gained a deeper, fuller identity than that of his limited ego self, which is only a fragment of his being. He has attained to a deep inner freedom, the freedom of the spirit we read about in the New Testament. Now this calls to mind the theology of St. Thomas on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which move a man to act in a superhuman mode. The anxieties which must be faced while en route to such a personality are painful and more dangerous than the anxieties born of ordinary life as we know it. St. John of the Cross felt that any separation from God was like a dark night 
he passed through a period of intense inner discomfort, feeling troubled, resisting his spiritual work, feeling as if devils were assaulting him at every turn. Merton suggests that today, anyone undergoing the final integration of actualization, although he doesn't refer to it as actualization, would soon, if discovered, find himself getting shock treatments, which would effectively take care of any further disturbing developments. One of the study participants described his own dark night this way. I was bereft, having started on a path I knew nothing about, having left all my old friends, key members of my family, feeling totally alone. I could remember flashes of experiences where I had felt myself to be one with the absolute, experiences which had encouraged me in a way no social or material accomplishment ever had. Yet I was cut off from those experiences. I felt I had no options, not one way to go that could help. Not even suicide was open to me, believing as I do that when you take your own life, there are unresolved issues you'll have to deal with at another time in another way. All I could do was wait. The waiting, as painful as it was, and as disturbed as I was, strengthened me, deepened my faith. I found in my waiting that the demands placed upon me prompted a response from me, that my own responding to life's demands was a source of hope for me. That was really all I had, my ability to respond. But it helped me through a most difficult time. It deepened my faith. The language of Sufism offers us a sacred term called fana, meaning the annihilation of the self, a spiritual death. This death is followed by baga, the reintegration of the personality. It is this period, the inner solitude, loneliness, and perhaps even despair, which creates the emotional, often the physical, ills that I am speaking about, which our society so poorly understands and cannot tolerate. The Eastern tradition has always acknowledged that the rebirth process, including self-annihilation, the reintegration of personality, is painful. The Zen tradition, for example, in keeping with its rather intellectual, unemotional observer stance regarding all attachment, acknowledges such pain but instructs its followers to detach from any physical or mental discomfort, as well as pleasure, as just something else to relinquish on the path to Satori. Hindu schools talk about Kundalini, which we have described earlier as an energy residing or sleeping at the base of the spine which begins its awakening when the individual starts the rebirth process through selective meditative techniques. When this energy awakens, it can create havoc in the central nervous system, according to believers, until it has worked its way up the spinal column, removing all blocks and stresses as it goes. This belief may or may not be true. Still, it is a legacy, a sort of rite of passage for growth and helps explain deal with and conceptualize the rebirth process. Gopi Krishna, who charted his experiences in his autobiography, Kundalini, describes one incident in which the Kundalini was moving in his body, a time when he thought he was going to die. The heat from the fiery currents that darted through my body grew every moment, 
causing such unbearable pain that I writhed and twisted from side to side, while streams of cold perspiration poured down my face and limbs. But still the heat increased. Suffering the most excruciating torture, there were dreadful disturbances in all the organs, each so alarming and painful that I wonder how I managed to retain my self-possession. The whole delicate organism was burning, withering away completely under the fiery blast racing through its interior. Western medicine is slow to realize that merely a change in thought can affect the physical body, for better or worse. It has discovered that the brain, as the largest gland in the body, emits specific hormones depending on the type of idea the thinker holds in his head. That ideas are things in the body which have the power to create life or death. It isn't surprising that people who consciously choose to disintegrate their old selves, their egocentricity, cultural, parentally conditioned selves, and who risk the challenges of solitary life during the disintegration period, might undergo emotional and even physical crisis. I am, at this writing, unable to explain some of the phenomena I have witnessed in the study participants and in myself as clearly as I might wish. For example, often in those who have used psychedelic drugs to induce their peak experiences, I have observed an indecisiveness or passivity. One study participant compared this to living in glue. This observation, and I have seen it many times, gives rise to my conservative stance on the use of drugs to create peak experiences, which I described at length earlier. In these persons, the nervous system seemed blocked, robbed of energy, understimulated in a way that creates inaction and the ability to decide which way to go in a host of simple life choices. It may be that what the person describes as lethargy is simply his body's specific response to the type of transformation he desires, radical inner growth, death, and reintegration. In this case, it is likely that energy once available for work, social relations, and creative effort is now redirected toward exploring the frontiers of consciousness at heretofore unexamined levels. On the other hand, it may also be that the nervous system is exhausted, overtaxed, either because of drugs or because it hasn't yet adapted to the new faculty of consciousness being sought. I should add that I've also seen people grow out of their apathy, eventually returning to more expressive, active states what they call normal functioning. Still, this is an area that needs much more examination, research, and clarification. Our society now needs more physicians sympathetic to this type of issue, physicians who can help humanity understand the physiological damage of transcendence. We need guides, clerics, counselors, therapists, who know something about the final integration phase of self-realization, persons who know firsthand about the rebirth and transpersonal maturity which the self-transcendent person seeks. Too many therapists, psychoanalysts, and physicians are either unfamiliar with or unfriendly towards spiritual topics, tend to see everything as pathology and treat every problem as disease. Similarly, our Judeo-Christian tradition 
unlike the various Eastern schools mentioned earlier, has not been inclined to depend on spiritual masters or teachers for human development needs. Perhaps this is a blessing in disguise. Certainly, we do not need yet another institutionalized set of rules, certificates, and courses to assist people with what is basically a highly personal, individualized matter. It is certain, with all I have said about our culture needing to sensitize itself to the spiritual dimension of life, that many great geniuses, mystics, and saints, such as Walt Whitman, William Blake, Mother Teresa, Buckminster Fuller, and countless others, have had the inner resources to foster their own growth in spite of society's obstacles. However, many more ordinary people with ordinary levels of intelligence or unglamorous occupations could possibly be encouraged toward healthier, self-dependent, toward self-transcendence if schools, churches, and other social institutions were sympathetic to the values of this work. They could discover that life is much more than making do and adjusting to the expectations of others. For that to happen, our society must place as much emphasis on spiritual growth as it places on other aspects of individual accomplishment. This has been a reading of Ordinary People as Monks and Mystics, Lifestyles for Self-Discovery by Marsha Senatar, and that was Chapter 7.